0: Tonight we're going to look at the church as a worshiping community, and uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we bow before you, we're conscious as we do so, that you are uh, the great and awesome God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you dwell in light, that we come before you with trembling and fear, for we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to you, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. And we worship and we adore because of all that you have done for us in creating us and recreating us in the gospel of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit, breathing the breath of God in, in bringing us to new life in Christ and witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, and if children heirs, heirs of God and, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So teachers, uh, tonight help us as we uh, look together at the church as a worshiping uh, community, and all of this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, on the cover uh, of the outline, uh, you'll see a very famous uh, quote. It's been quoted a million times uh, over the last uh, decade or so um, by John Piper. Uh, It's one of the quotations that John Piper is known for. Um, I think if you were to do a poll and say what... What do you know about John Piper? Uh, This is probably what most people will say, uh, that he is the guy who wrote, missions exist because worship doesn't. Uh, Worship is the ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. He's he's partly addressing, he's not, of course, in any sense, shape, or form uh, trying to downplay the need and role of missions. Uh, It is is, uh, the goal and the the directive given to the church to go into all the world and make disciples. Uh, But the ultimate goal is to make disciples who will worship him. So the ultimate goal is worship and not missions well you can take that quotation out of context of course but but John Piper is uh, emphasizing the importance uh, the, the singular importance of worship and uh, this uh, this uh, i can 't remember what month we're in but uh, this this spring uh, um, We've been looking at ecclesiology, we've been looking at the doctrine of the church, and uh, tonight I want us to look at the church as a worshipping community. Now, worship, at least that's that's the word that we use in English, uh, which comes from uh, an old uh, English word, an Elizabethan uh, uh, word uh, in English, uh, worth Uh, We worship God because of his worth, because of his value, uh, because of who he is in and of himself, or or the worthiness of God, and it translates uh, a variety uh, of Hebrew and Greek terms, uh, and terms in Hebrew and Greek that denote um, inward uh, dispositions and outward expressions Worship. Uh, That is, response to God as He reveals Himself both in creation uh, and in Scripture. And the terms in Greek and Hebrew, and and there were were too many. uh, uh, On another occasion, I I would provide you with a list, and at one point, uh, I drew up a chart. Uh, Of a list of about 40 different words in Hebrew and Greek, Um, uh, too too many for this evening's purposes. But they boil down to uh, ideas like bowing down before, um, kissing, toward, and an idea of uh, relationship, and 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 uh, and so on. But uh, uh, but having in Having as its basic idea a a movement of affection towards uh, God, Uh, expressing reverence and and awe, Um, honoring the glory of, and serving. Uh, And serving. Uh, We still almost say, uh, what time is the service? and we say it's 8.30 or 11.15 or 6 o'clock on a Sunday, uh, morning service, B- because uh, one of the Greek words uh, in particular means to serve. We serve God by worshiping. Um, and that, and that, let me pause there, because that may, that may be one of those things that, that changes the way you think about worship. You may think about worship as something very passive. You sit in church and you and you listen. but actually worship is an active verb. You're serving and and your worship is service. It's doing what God created you to do. God put you on this world, on this globe in order to worship him. That is your reasonable act of service. That is your reasonable act of worship. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, a reasonable act of service, or a reasonable act of worship. Uh, What am I quoting? Hebrews 12, uh, 1 and 2. Romans, sorry. Uh, 12, 1 and 2. I've had one of those days. so I'll, I'll focus in a second. Um, the second point here, and I, I don't want to go into this in detail, there's a lot of detail here for you to look at at some other occasion, um, but I, ju- I just want to make the point here, and, and you, can, you can think about it and dwell on it a little, a little more at another occasion, um, but the idea of creation as a temple uh, the God creates the universe and he creates the world and he creates all the living creatures and all the uh, vegetation in the world and he creates man after his image and likeness in order that man might worship him. So you see the beauty of God in creation. The, 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 the creation uh, reveals and shows forth and manifests the glory of God and, and you worship him. So the idea of, in general terms, of the creation itself and, and our being in that creation as a temple for worship. Uh, and there are, there are some details there that would take me too long to, uh, to go into here tonight, but just I just want to plant that, that seed, that thought, uh, in your uh, heads about... Man being created to worship and being placed in the world and in the Garden of Eden as a worshiper, in a temple. And there's a sense in which the book of Revelation, the counterpiece to Genesis 1 to 3, uh, revealing uh, the end product of redemption as a temple. In which we worship Him. Well, uh, Eden then as as holy space in which God's image bearers may worship their Creator. Uh, that's a that's a seed. Uh, Plant it in your brain and, and and affections and 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 let it let it germinate uh, for a, a season. Now I want to focus on on corporate gatherings of worship. There is, there is worship in general. There is, there is, there is worship in the sense of, of uh, everything that we do is, is worshipful. So when you're painting or, or you're, you're putting numbers on a ledger or you're dealing with Microsoft Word or whatever it is that you're doing uh, or, 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 or raising children, you do it worshipfully. So, there's a sense in which all of life is worship. It's, it's not that we worship when we gather together on Sundays or we gather together midweek for a, a, a time of Bible study and, and, and prayer and praise and we, and we worship for sure. There are, these, there are these rhythms of worship in the course of our, of our days and of our, of our week. But all of life is worship. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. I want to focus on on the special gatherings as worship, recognizing and realizing that we mustn't make here a, a sort of distinction between sacred times and completely secular times you know this is this is the hour we give to God and the rest is is something else all of life is worship so when you're arguing a case in law at the courthouse you're doing it as an act of worship to the living God using the gifts that God has given to you for his glory but corporate gatherings for worship let me let me walk through uh, and that's all I'm going to do a walk through uh, first of all the old testament with uh, with homage here to Dr. Davis that I'm about to uh, do it in five minutes. Um, The main features in the liturgical pattern revealed to us in the Old Testament are these. First of all, the Sabbath, uh, revealed in creation in Genesis long, long before God reveals the pattern of the Sabbath. In a redemptive context. Long before that. He reveals it. In the context of creation. Man as man. Needs the Sabbath. There is something about man as man. If he is to be fully man. If he is to be what God created him to be. He needs that Sabbath. That that time that holy time given in worship to the Lord so every seventh day observed as a memorial of creation and later in Deuteronomy 5 uh, of redemption and that sabbath principle in the old testament was um, enforced Uh, And, and of course, there were drastic consequences. It was a capital offense to break the Sabbath uh, in Israel. So, the Sabbath. Secondly, three national annual feasts in which the people uh, gathered in God's uh, sanctuary uh, to offer sacrifices celebrating His bounty and to seek and acknowledge reconciliation and fellowship with Him, to eat and drink together uh, as an expression of joy. And these three national uh, feasts were Passover, accompanied as that was with the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the, first, on the 14th day of the first uh, month of the Jewish calendar, uh, which commemorated the Exodus. Secondly, the Feast of Weeks, sometimes known as the Feast of First Fruits, which marked the end of the grain harvest and was held 50 days after the Sabbath that began Passover. And thirdly, the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths. It was the one that children loved because you got to camp out on the roof. Uh, in makeshift booths for a week uh, and sometimes also known as the uh, Feast of in Gathering and, and colloquially we might think of it in terms of harvest, Thanksgiving uh, that has sort of stepped over into a Christian uh, commemoration of that period of the year and it was celebrated at the end of the um, agricultural uh, calendar year uh, as well as being a reminder of how God led Israel through the desert. So, the, so feast of Passover, feast of Weeks, and feast of Tabernacles, and those three were national, um, were annual national feasts. Then, uh, in the Old Testament, there's the Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the seventh month, uh, when the high priest went into the sanctuary. Uh, to uh, atone for the sins of uh, Israel uh, during the previous year. An scapegoat scapegoat uh, one goat was sacrificed. An escape goat was, uh, was driven into the desert uh, as a sign that those sins uh, were now gone. What a beautiful image that is, by the way. You drive this goat into the desert, and off it goes. I know in your head you've got a picture that the goat keeps coming back. Right, But you have to imagine this goat is disappearing off into the desert somewhere, uh, and it would be taken, presumably uh, someone would take this goat far, far away uh, so that it wouldn't be seen uh, ever again as a, as a visual aid of how God forgives sin. And then fourthly, the regular sacrificial uh, system, uh, which involved daily and, and monthly burnt offerings. Uh, plus uh, a, a whole battery of, uh, of uh, personal uh, sacrifices, uh, the, the, the common features of which were that anything offered must be flawless, uh, and that uh, when an animal was offered, its blood must be poured out on the altar of burnt offering uh, to make atonement. Uh, then during uh, the exile... In Babylon, uh, there emerges uh, something called a synagogue, a gathering together, uh, an assembly or a congregation, and and the word passes over into the New Testament, and merges into the idea uh, of church, ecclesia, church, and synagogue uh, are related ideas. Uh, and the term uh, then used for an assembly or a congregation of Jews uh, for the purpose of worship and study, and you, you see a reference to that in Acts 13, uh, or the building in which such an assembly meets, you know, we do that too. Uh, we, we, we use the word church sometimes to mean the building in which, in which the church actually meets. So we, we make that distinction uh, too in English. And James uses the same word to refer to a Christian assembly. James 2.2, the ESV renders it assembly, uh, but it, it's the Greek word synagogue. But because it's no longer just a Jewish synagogue, but it's a Christian gathering, uh, the ESV translators now have, have, have said, yes, it is synagogue. Technically, the word is synagogue, but it, but it means here simply synagogue as a as a gathering as an assembly uh, of uh, of believers now without a temple during the uh, exile before the second temple uh, without a temple worship was confined to uh, this embryonic emerging synagogue uh, worship now the question uh, just a brief question uh, that that again requires you know, an hour or two to, to expand. What did they do in the synagogue? What would they have done in a synagogue, say, in Babylon? And what did they do in synagogues that continued even after the Second Temple was built? And the synagogues that were in existence, say, at the time of uh, Jesus and the Apostles, the synagogue in which early Christians w- worshipped in. What did they do in that synagogue? What was it like? Well, basically what they did in the synagogue was that they prayed, they read scripture, they heard scripture being expounded and they sang, though they didn't sing in all synagogues. uh, There were certainly traditions of synagogues. The one in Memphis for example, uh, in Egypt uh, had had a, a strong tradition of singing. And then after the Second Temple, Jews continued to gather in synagogues for this purpose, especially those Jews who lived far away from Jerusalem. Now that's kind of sort of important when we consider the fact that the church the new testament church springs from the life of the synagogue as much as the church demarcates itself from temple worship particularly the sacrificial and ceremonial aspects of temple worship and once that temple is destroyed in 68, 69, 70 uh, A.D. The, the church is drawing from a tradition that is rooted in the synagogue. And what is it that they did in the synagogue? Well, they sang and they read and they prayed and they listened. Period. So what do you do in church, mostly? Well, you sing... And you read, and you pray, and you listen, right? And you administer sacraments, but but there's a there's a continuity here, both in practice, right, and in purpose, between the synagogue and the church. Now let's dive into the New Testament. Uh, some basic Thoughts here that first of all, that the priesthood of Christ, his sacrifice, his intercession, uh, do away with, supersede, fulfill uh, all of the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. So all of those sacrifices... And and rituals of sacrifice uh, are now uh, done away with and and fulfilled in in Christ. Um, Two particular sacraments, signs and seals of the covenant, of the new covenant, baptism, Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and Lord, I'm with you uh, always. Baptism and the Lord's Supper as introduced by Jesus in, uh, in the upper room, in the Last Supper, where, at least I think, Passover gives way to the Lord's Supper. I, I see the Lord's Supper as a as a fulfilment of Passover, rather than something else, it's kind of trendy today. To think of the Lord's Supper as as a as a covenant meal uh, that's that's re- referred to, say, in Leviticus 23. But, but I, th- I think that think that the connection here between with the Lord's Supper is with the Passover. Passover becomes the Lord's Supper. So baptism and the supper replace circumcision and Passover. So the two, the two um, s- sacraments, signs, and seals of the covenant of, 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 um, uh, um, uh, under the old covenant, circumcision and Passover, are now replaced by these two signs and seals: baptism and the Lord's supper in the new covenant. Uh, Galatians and and Paul in Colossians 2 um, makes a big deal of whether or not we should still be bound by the Old Testament Jewish festal calendar. You know, that issue is still before us. In part, it's the issue of should the church have a church calendar. You know, we do church calendar light. We do Easter and Christmas, basically, and Mother's Day, maybe. Um, but, but, but apart from apart from that, uh, we don't follow rigidly a, a, an ecclesiastical calendar that somehow or other mimics the calendar of the Old Testament. Let alone commemorating, say, uh, the Day of Atonement or or, or Passover or, or any of these uh, festal. Uh, annual gatherings uh, in the Old Testament. And it seems to me that's what Paul is actually saying in Galatians 4 and Colossians 2, that those, those uh, observances of days and and particular Sabbaths, Paul isn't addressing the weekly Sabbath, I think, but but other, uh, other ceremonial aspects of Sabbath uh, are, are no longer, they no longer bind. Uh, Sabbath is renewed. Well, I'm going to get a little edgy here, and, 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 and I'm, I'm revealing my colors here. Uh, I, I believe in ten commandments, not nine commandments, or nine and a half commandments. So the fourth commandment still has to be binding in some form or some fashion. So the view that says there, there is no observance of um, the Sabbath or the Lord's Day under the new covenant... That it's entirely a matter of utilitarianism. That that it's it's kind of good that you sort of meet together at some point. So so why not Sunday? But hey, Tuesday would be fine. Um, I, I think I think I think we, are, we we still repeat the Ten Commandments. We still say the Ten Commandments. We still believe in the Ten Commandments. Not nine commandments. Not nine and a half commandments. we we'll, we can talk about that some other time. But but the Sabbath. But but. What happens from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that the Sabbath I think is renewed and it's recounted instead of, instead of six days of labor, work followed by rest, you now have rest followed by work, which is a gospel pattern that we work in response to the rest Of the gospel, Uh, it's clear for sure that the apostles of the New Testament recounted the sequence of one in seven, but it's still a sequence of one in seven. But they recounted it to commemorate the resurrection day of the Lord Jesus, the Lord's day. So you have, for example, in. In Revelation 1.10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So, so this first day of the week, Sunday now, becomes the day, the special day that the New Testament apostles called the Lord's day. Now, if you went up to the New Testament apostles and said, well, don't you believe that all days are the Lord's days? I mean, isn't Monday the Lord's day or Tuesday? I mean, aren't you supposed to serve the Lord on Wednesday or Thursday? Yes, they're all the Lord's days, but there's one day that is the Lord's day. But don't you believe that, that you should worship God on Saturday? Yes, it is the Lord's day. But there's one day that is the Lord's day. Now, your argument is not with me. It's with the New Testament apostles. They were the ones who, who, who made that big deal about the Lord's day. So there it is in Revelation 110. There's a reference to it uh, in Acts 20 when Paul is at uh, um, Miletus on his way back to uh, Jerusalem. T- treating, it seems to me, w- without getting into casuistry, right, without asking silly questions about how, you know, how far can I walk on, on the Lord's day and not break the fourth commandment, Without getting into questions of casuistry, it seems to me that the New Testament apostles gave some kind of equivalence to the Lord's day as to the Sabbath day in terms of the fact that it was special. And it was a day that was set apart for gatherings of the Lord's people. Now, um, five... The the oh I didn't give you the text. It's in Hebrews. What what is that text? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for for He who promised is faithful. And let us let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. From Hebrews, not not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Well, you know, unlike today, the the author of Hebrews pastorally saw that some some were neglecting meeting, and I'm being ironic, were were neglecting to meet together, and, and he's making this exhortation, don't neglect to meet with one another for pastoral reasons. Uh, consider Acts two forty two. I know it's not there, but it, it should be there, and it was meant to be there. Um, Acts two forty two, the, the little cameo of the early church that we have, um, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers—actually, the prayers as though yes the prayers as though there was something a little more definitive a little more structured about the prayers as though as though Luke is giving you a little hint here that the early church when they met together had at least a little bit of liturgy i don't mean liturgy Max, I mean liturgy, liturgy in the sense of there were the prayers. Perhaps these were the prayers of the Hebrew synagogue that had now become Christianized in some form in that period, where they segue from from the kaddush and the hash. Boehner and whatever else those prayers were in the in the in the tabernacle and uh, I mean in the in the synagogue and and now now they're still they're still in that transition from a synagogue to something else to meeting in upper rooms in house churches in, into communities that will eventually be called churches uh, we don't have any specific Record of liturgy in the New Testament. There are fragments, I think, that can be uh, that can be uh, found. Uh, and let me let me um, uh, let me pass over A and B because of time, and, and drop down to C here. Uh, let's look at what Paul is saying in First Corinthians 14. Uh, what then, brothers, when you come together, uh, each one as a hymn? And you have to imagine. You know, for all the dysfunctionality of the church in Corinth, you're being given here a little snapshot of what they did when they gathered together in Corinth for, for worship. And, and, and they've got a hymn. What is that? I, I don't know. You know, is that a psalm? Is that a, a little fragment of a statement of Jesus uh, that, that, that now is being sung from oral tradition and, and, and memory? There's some hint in the New Testament that passages like Philippians two, five through eleven, or Colossians one,15 through20 uh, are early sort of hymns. they 're like statements of faith, but, they, but they, they will also work as hymns and perhaps sung to a particular tune. We, we, we have no absolute evidence of that, but it seems to be that. So, so w- when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson. A revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up, right? If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Now, right, this is a period of time when uh, the Corinthians obviously had this gift of tongues, which I take it to mean gift of of speaking in foreign languages rather than in some kind of angelic language or private prayer language these were languages and and Paul is giving rules he's giving he's giving he's saying when you worship there, there has to be some kind of structure if somebody's going to speak in a, in a foreign tongue, I'm, I'm uh, Darius could do something in Polish, I can do something in Welsh, but, but you don't understand what I'm saying. In fact, I'm not sure I understand what I'm saying. Because it's the poem I learned when I was in school, when I was seven or eight years old. It's about a, a, a brook, a stream that begins up in the mountain and ends up in the ocean, uh, a, a bit like Smetana's Ma Blast, if you catch the, the analogy. But, but it's about, uh, it's about a, a, a little brook that begins in the mountain and works its way down and gets wider and wider and wider, and, 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 and there are animals and birds and things on the way, and then it ends up in the sea. Um, but unless I, unless I give you that interpretation, it, it doesn't mean anything to you. Oh, you might be in awe that I can speak another language. It's actually my first language. Um, but but that's, that's of no use to you, nor is it worshipful. Unless I actually explain that. So, but he's giving, he's, I mean, forget about the uh, problem of, are there tongues in the church today? That's not the point of 1st Corinthians 14. The point of 1st Corinthians 14 is to say that when you gather together for worship, th- there's order, there's, there's structure. He's saying, and catch the drift here, if, if you can't interpret what it is that you're saying, you need to shut up. In prophecy, right he goes on to say something similar about prophecy and and he limits it he limits it to two or three. What if you 're number four and and you're just you're just itching to to say this thing Paul is saying no, S- sit down and be quiet there has to be order there has to be some some uh, structure to the church. So, th- this, is, this is the fledgling church with all of its dysfunctionality in Corinth, but Paul is saying there's order and there's structure. Right? Doing things decently and, and in order is not just a Presbyterian thing, though it is a Presbyterian thing. But it is, but it is also a biblical thing. It's a New Testament now into that mix comes something of a regulative principle. that's a kind of buzzword for us as presbyterians because it's a term that uh, it's an idea that appears in the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 and again in uh, chapter uh, uh, 20 and, t- and 21 uh, of uh, of the Westminster Confession you see the the root of it uh, in Colossians 2:23 and this uh, this word, Ethelothreskia, uh, these have indeed, and he's talking about about uh, about uh, certain things, uh, certain things that the Colossians were giving a great deal of time to and 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 uh, were insisting upon. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self self-made religion and asceticism, asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping. The indulgence of the flesh. It's that idea of promoting self made, self made uh, religion. The idea behind that is that when you gather together for worship, it must be corporately, that is, as a body, as a church, it, it, it must be for, according to principles that God himself demands. That that worship must not be at the mercy of the minister or of a group of ministers or of a denomination. Because if you do that, what you've got is tyranny. What you you have is man-made religion rather than God required religion, so so the idea that comes to play, it comes to play in the Reformation, it comes to play in Calvin, it comes to play in the Puritans, uh, the Westminster Divines. So it's uh, it's a part and parcel of uh, the the basic argument of the Westminster Confession about worship that, that there must be there must be a divine, God-given biblical precedent for what we do in public worship. Now, what are those regulatory features? Uh, And uh, there are six of them uh, that I refer to here. Um, Singing, uh, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, there is a there is a specific warrant in Scripture that when you gather together, you sing. It's not good enough to say, well, why not? I mean, wouldn't this be fun? Wouldn't this be great if we did X, Y, or Z when we gather together? We need, we need specific scriptural warrant. And, and what do we find in Scripture where there is warrant? Well, Singing. So when you gather together, you should sing. Now it doesn't tell you what you should sing. It doesn't say how many times do you sing. Can you sing? Uh, 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 and uh, can you sing? Um, what is the c- coming forward? The invitation hymn. Just as I am. I told totally you I was having one of those days. Right. It doesn't say you can't. You can't. Sing it 10 times or 15 times. Though remember, everything should be done decently and in order. Right? There should be a, a sense of decorum about worship. So apply that principle. But when you come together, you sing. Do you sing psalms? Do you sing hymns? Do you sing hymns only written in 18-something and not something that's written in 2006 by Townend and Getty? No, the Bible doesn't say anything about that but sing. Pray. First of all, then, I urge, and, and this is in the context of worship, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. Uh, it's in a worship setting. So, so, so here's a biblical mandate. When you gather together, you should pray. Now, should that prayer be long or short? Should that be uh, an, an opening invocation, which is an invocare, which is a calling upon the Holy Spirit to help us in our worship, should it be the pastoral prayer uh, we 're not given the answer to this but but we are we are told we are told should it should it be extempore prayer, should it be a liturgical prayer like the lord 's prayer Right? And again, we're not given we're not given hard and fast rules for that, but we are told when we gather together we should pray. Uh, scripture to be read and expounded, and there are some passages there uh, that, that explain that. Uh, preaching and exposition for which gifts were given in the church. He gave pastor, uh, teachers in uh, Ephesians four eleven. Uh, there's also warrant in scripture for congregational response. Uh, t- two very interesting texts, uh, one in First Corinthians 14:6. Uh, uh, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an, outside, of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? But, but the implication, you know, if you're doing this in an unknown tongue, which is the context of First Corinthians 14, h- how is somebody going to say amen because they don't know what you said? But the implication is that the congregation were expected to actually say Amen. Well, okay, we we sing it. I wish, I I love being in a congregation where at the end of the pastoral prayer the entire congregation there's like a thunderstorm and it says, Amen. Or in America, Amen. I love that. You know, we sing it. Uh, Dr. Miller, on occasions, uh, and 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 it—you can't predict when they're going to come. You just have to, you sort of feel for it. Is there, a, is there an is there an there Amen coming here? Yes, there is, uh, and 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 we sing it. It's very appropriate. There's scriptural warrant for it. We are saying we agree with this. And, and you're meant to be Bereans and search the Scriptures. And if a pastor says something that's uh, that's uh, Out of accord with Scripture, that's another problem. But but if it's in accord with Scripture, you say, this is my prayer. It's not his prayer. This is my prayer. He's praying on behalf of the congregation. Amen. Uh, Sacraments, uh, regular participation in the supper. I will explain what I mean by regular at some other point. Uh, and, then, and then Lord's Day, and I've already, I've already said something about Lord's Day, but uh, uh, for sociological reasons, meeting, uh, notice that meeting at night in Acts 20, that, that famous uh, passage where Paul seems to preach all night, uh, and, and there was a little minor incident in the middle of it. And, um, and then for Christological reasons, the first day of the week, uh, commemorating the resurrection uh, of Christ. Christ. Well, there's a whole lot more to say about uh, uh, worship. Not least the passage that I cited uh, when I was praying earlier. Uh, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And you know, that's one of the things that I love to think about most when we gather together for worship. That it's not just us. It's not just our family it's our wider family, the ARP. Right? I was on a conference call today uh, on a committee that I wish I was none, but, but uh, uh, two of the brothers were in Canada. Uh, they, was, they were saying it was still snowing, and they were cold. And I heard somebody saying about turning the heat up in the middle of the conference. It was a three-hour conference call this morning. Uh, so these, are my, these are our brothers. But then, but then there's the wider church worldwide, and then there's the church triumphant I'm rather proud that I can raise my arm, so I'm doing it now. Uh, the, church, the church triumphant on the other side, along with angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim and the 24 elders and, and, and maybe other creatures that we know nothing about that God has created, and we're all together worshiping Him. Well, a whole lot to ponder. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank You. We want to be a worshiping community, and as we sing and pray and read and and listen to Scripture being expounded and see a baptism and and enjoy the extraordinary blessing of the supper uh, and say amen together on the Lord's Day as we formally gather as your people in covenant assembly before your throne. We want these occasions to be special and to be God-exalting and Christ-exalting and Spirit-filled and based on Scripture. And all to your praise and glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen.